All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is May 23rd, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be on the Paris Commune of 1871. It's going to be a very important class because, as we all know, the Paris Commune is the first socialist experiment. Even before the Soviet Union, we had the Paris Commune. And as our general secretary likes to mention, the Paris Commune lasted 70 or so days, but the uh, Soviet Union lasted 70 years. So this is a very important part of our history that we wanted to learn about. On the 152nd anniversary of the Paris Commune and Bloody Week, so, comrade, is there anything that you'd like to say before we get started on our class tonight? It is a little bit special this week because Sunday was May 21st. This coming up Sunday is May 28th. 152 years ago, it was just the same. Bloody Week started on a Sunday, May 21st, 1871. And it ended on May 28th, a Sunday. 1871. 30,000 communards were massacred between seven days and seven nights. So this week we are relieving this bloody week 152 years later. That's all, comrade, for now. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and get started with the presentation. So as we said, tonight's class is going to be on the Paris Commune of 1871. Uh, what we're going to be learning about tonight is the significance of the Paris Commune at the time and today, both for the communist movement and the general working class. We're also going to learn why the Paris Commune came about in its historical context with a timeline of events uh, leading up to uh, and during the Paris Commune. So we're going to kind of explore some of the events that were happening in France in the century basically leading up to this. And the other thing that we're going to be learning about tonight is the role of proletarian patriotism in the commune. And so we'll start out with our first section, which is on the historical context and the timeline of the Paris Commune. And comrade can begin. The 18th century ended with the French Revolution, which was a revolt against monarchy and feudalism. The whole 19th century was a century of insurrection in France, each one getting stronger than the previous. The first proletarian revolution occurred in June 1848 in Paris, a prelude to the Paris Commune. It lasted only one week. Marx drew many lessons from the revolution of 1848 and would later compare it to the Paris Commune in 1871. The Franco-Prussian War started in 1870 it was a war between the second French empire and the kingdom of Prussia, now known as Germany. The French bourgeoisie were losing and ready to capitulate to Prussia. Napoleon III went to war because of the rising struggle of the working class, strikes and militancy. He was trying to copy Napoleon I, first as tragedy, then as farce. Napoleon III being the farce. At the news, the Paris proletariat sprang up into action, overthrew the Second Empire, and as usual, handed power to the bourgeoisie, who proclaimed the Republic, the third one, on September 4, 1870. As a side note, the Third Republic lasted 70 years until World War II. It began with a German invasion, and it ended with another German invasion. September 1870 marked the end of the Second Empire, 
and the end of emperors once and for all. But as normal, the workers spilled their blood in the streets and the bourgeois Republicans grabbed the state power. The red flag flies on top of barricades, but the tricolor, blue, white, and red, flies on top of the parliament. On the night of March 18th, 1871, the bourgeois government sent the regular troops to disarm the National Guard, also called the Federates. Women workers who were the first awake gave the alarm to their men sleeping, and the National Guard rushed to confront the soldiers. Most of them fraternized with the Federates and turned their guns against their own officers. On the spot, the Federates executed the general who commanded the bourgeois army. By the way, they also executed another general. He was wearing civilian clothes, but workers recognized him, the older workers, because in June 1848, 23 years before, he massacred the insurgents on the barricades. They shot him on the spot as well. What was left of the bourgeois so-called National Army retreated in panic 12 miles outside of Paris to the city of Versailles. And the bourgeois government, feeling all naked, followed them quick and in a hurry. It abandoned Paris and it left it to the armed workers who took the power in their hands. They proclaimed the commune. All right, and we're gonna watch a brief video on the Paris Commune. For 72 days in 1871, the people of Paris opened the door to utopia. The workers decided to barricade themselves, establish their own government with their own democratic principles, and try to solve the problems that the ruling class had created. On 19th March, 1871, the day after the revolution of the Commune began, Prosper Olivier Lissigre wrote, The red flag floated above the Hôtel de Ville. With the early morning mists, the army, the government, the administration had evaporated. From the depths of the Bastille, from the obscure Rue Basfroy, the Central Committee was lifted to the summits of Paris in the sight of all the world. The decrees of the Paris Commune clearly show the working class character of its administration. Deserted factories were to be occupied and run by the workers. Fines levied on the workers were abolished. Night work was banned in the bakeries and church property was taken over for social use. The workers seized Paris, but they did not seize its bank nor did they gather their considerable forces and march on Versailles to force the surrender of the government of the bourgeoisie. The communards built barricades and prepared themselves for the eventual attack. When it came between 22nd May and 28th May, they could not maintain their hold on the city. Every street became a battlefield. With each battle, the communards had to retreat deeper and deeper into their lost city. The bourgeoisie's view of the commune treats the uprising as a sin and blames the communards themselves for their own deaths. But the revolt did not kill itself. It was killed by the vengeful bourgeoisie, which sought to wrench this hard-fought sovereignty from the hands of the working class and re-establish its order to benefit itself. The lesson of the commune was not merely for the Parisian workers or for France, but it was a lesson for the international working class. Reflecting on the Paris Commune, Lenin wrote, 
The cause of the commune is the cause of the social revolution. The cause of the complete political and economic emancipation of the workers. It is the cause of the proletariat of the whole world. And in this sense, it is immortal. All right, so we'll go to our first round of questions and comments. Does anybody, if anybody can answer this question, maybe comrade, what, what were some of the forces ideologically that took place in the commune? Um, were they like Marxists? Were they anarchists? What were they exactly? Do we know? Yes. Okay. So it's a little complicated, but not so bad. Basically, the leadership of the commune was split. The majority were Blanquists from Auguste Blanqui. Auguste Blanqui was a revolutionary, French revolutionary, who specialized in armed insurrection, conspiracy. His theory was that a small group of well-disciplined revolutionaries could take power, even if nobody followed them, you know, like a coup d'etat type, okay? So he was the majority in the commune. Then the minority were followers of the international that was created in 1864 by Karl Marx and Engels, right? Okay, but the Paris section of the international, they were not actual followers of Marx. They were followers of Proudhon, an anarchist, okay? So the actual Marxists were in the minority. And yet Karl Marx supported 100% the communards even though they were not following him per se, okay? So that's a story of, and another thing interesting that Engels mentioned in the um, Civil War in France preface that he wrote 20 years later, he said, the Blanquists, they actually, once they went power for 72 days, they did the opposite of their doctrine. And the anarchists did also the opposite. In other words, the Blanquists who were like, about conspiracies, small group and stuff like that. They tried to unite many communes and they were very democratic type, okay? And the anarchists who uh, are typically anarchists and do not like centralization, they did the opposite. They gathered the factories together into a, a, a one single plan, like a planned economy. So it's funny, and Engels said that, they did the opposite of what they proclaimed before. That's all, comrade. Thank you, comrade, and I hope that answered your question, comrade. Okay, I just wanted to say, like, this is all very interesting stuff, and it shows the, you know, the progression of our ideology and how we've gotten to the point where we are now. Like, these mistakes were not only studied, but, you know, we looked at the failures, we looked at the successes, and we continued to build upon that, you know, and then you go forward, and then 1917 happens. But, you know, an important thing to note here is, like, Anarchists could have a million French commune, Paris commune style things, and it'll never work because they never take that next step. You know, you have to have control of the police. You have to have control of the military. You have to have control of essential institutions. You can't just let everything go into chaos just because you won one military battle or two. You know, they're very short-sighted and it just shows that, you know, like modern day anarchists, Trotskyites, all these kind of folks like this, that's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So I assume there was still like pre-planning ahead of this, because as we clearly know uh, ourselves, you don't just wake up one day with 50,000 organized people and take over half a city 
there must have been people set up in places and then a signal was given and then and then this all happened or is there a little more nuance to to just a group of workers randomly being like no we don't want this anymore and rising up all together and being somewhat successful so i just wanted to know if there's any like pre stuff to all this actually going down thank you okay so what happened is what is essential is a war that happened okay when prussia came to the gates of paris surrounded paris put in a siege for four months many people died now at that time the workers were armed 300,000 of them with weapons and they were workers it was called the national guard later called federates okay they had the weapons but they didn't have the state power yet now the state power was held by the bourgeoisie the third republic tier okay but when he saw the workers with weapons they got scared to death what mattered at the time for him was to disarm the workers, never mind the Prussians at the gates of Paris. No big deal. He was ready to lick their boots, but he tried to disarm the workers. The workers could not accept, one, to be disarmed, and two, to lick the boots of the foreign invader. So it was a union of socialism and patriotism. And that's what sparked everything. And they jumped into action. The minute the government came to get their weapons, they jumped into action and kicked their asses out of Paris and took power. That was it. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I just have one more question before we go back to the next section. And comrade, we'll get your uh, hand in the next discussion. Comrade, can you expand just a little bit on kind of the French Revolution of the late 1700s and the revolutionary moments in the early 1800s that sort of led to this and their kind of relationship with the commune? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the revolution of 1789 ended the monarchy. And uh, it started in 1789, but the first republic was proclaimed in 1792. And that uh, the year later, they cut the head off of the king named Louis XVI. Okay, lasted. After a while, Robespierre, he was a Bolshevik of the revolution. He was admired by Lenin. But after that, there was a reactionary wing of the bourgeoisie that killed him too. Then it was reaction. Then it ended 1799. And then Napoleon came on the scene and he took power a few years later, became emperor. That was the first empire. Okay. That was conquest, chauvinism, not patriotism, chauvinism, nationalism. You know, it's different. You conquer land. Okay. Napoleon was beaten by the feudals, though. They didn't like him either. They all conspired against him. They beat his ass up in Waterloo, right? He was done. After that, the kings come back. The brother of the one who got killed, who got his head taken off. And he has a brother. But then there was his revolution, 1830. The first one, Republican, bourgeois, okay. The people of Paris, proletarians, kicked the kings once and for all. 97. No, it wasn't uh, once and for all. They kicked the ass of the old school kings. And they put a new, a new school king named Louis Philippe, who was more liberal, you know, like a 2.0 king, right? And that one, right away, revolution after revolution. 1832, revolution, barricades. 1839, barricades. Louis Blanqui, he was arrested, condemned to death. The same Louis Blanqui for the commune later, right? Then comes 1848. 1848, 
is a spark that inflamed all Europe. The revolution of 1848 started in Paris, went to every single country in Europe, the whole continent. Karl Marx talked a lot about this. And then at that time, no more kings, it was a second republic, okay? Only last three years. And then comes Napoleon III. He does a coup d'etat and he want to do the empire again, second empire, but that ended when he got his ass kicked by the Prussians in 1870. And that was the prelude to the commune, uh, like wave after wave after wave, nonstop for a hundred years of barricades, revolution and all that. Okay. And boom, comes a big one, La Commune. That's it. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go to our second section now. The timeline of the Paris Commune continued. From that day, they became known as Les Communards, but they made a mistake, which would turn out to be fatal later. They did not pursue the fleeing bourgeois army to wipe them out. Mistakenly, they let the regular army regroup in Versailles under the bourgeois government headed by Thiers. So, you know, basically the commune broke rule number one, strike the iron while it's hot. If you're gonna shoot, shoot, and they didn't. Another huge mistake by the communal was to leave the Bank of France. They stopped at the gates of it. All the gold of France was there to be taken, but they didn't. The Bank of France paid Thiers army and government with that gold. The naivete was criticized by Marx and that didn't get lost on Lenin 50 years later. During the October revolution, one of the first missions of the Red Guards and the military revolutionary committee was to secure at once Kerensky's government's gold. Right away, they took the gold, first thing they did. Communards showed to be naively good-hearted towards the enemy. When communards took bourgeois army prisoners, they would just release them. They even let them keep their weapons. On the other hand, every communard taken by Thiers soldiers was summarily executed, many of them even tortured. Thiers negotiated with Bismarck, the leader of Prussia, and begged him to release Louis Napoleon. Louis Napoleon was Napoleon III, same, same thing. Captive soldiers so that they would join the fight against the commune. Bismarck agreed if Thiers would give him some French territory. Of course, Thiers made the deal. He handed Bismarck two French provinces bordering Germany, Alsace and Lorraine. Thiers was able to rebuild his army patiently over two months. And finally, he was able to launch his offensive on May 21st, 1871. The bourgeois army was able to break the gates of Paris and enter the city. The whole Paris proletariat, men, women, children, took to the streets and built barricades all over the city. The combat lasted seven days and seven nights. These last seven days are known as La Semaine Sanglante, the bloody week. Communards took their last stand on Sunday, May the 28th, at the Père Lachaise Cemetery, where they fought hand to hand in between the graves. For over 100 years, on the last Sunday of May, a march takes place to the wall to honor the memory of the Paris communards, who, as Karl Marx said, stormed the heavens. That annual march is known as La Montée au Mur, the climb to the wall. When Lenin had to decide of a national anthem for the Soviet Republic, he spontaneously chose L'Internationale. 
Lenin's wish was to be buried wrapped in a red flag of the commune that was kept for 50 years and made its way to Russia. Very few communards survived to old age, hoping for a revenge before they passed away, but some did. And finally, in October 17, they got their revenge. Now the less communards could rest in peace. All right, and with that, we'll stop for another round of questions and comments. So it appears that the commune had not just the French bourgeoisie, but the Russian bourgeoisie against them. And I think it was mentioned that the, the Second International uh, was you know, supporting the commune. But besides that, what support did they have internationally? Didn't sound like much. Uh, first Conrad, it was the first international, oh, not second. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing you said that because after the defeat of the commune, not long after, they dissolved the first international, okay? It was one of the reasons. Okay, as far as support, in France, they had support, for example, from other cities that did commune. But sadly, the majority of the population, which were the peasants, stayed neutral, didn't do anything. Internationally, they had support of the fighters that fought the civil war on the side of the Union. There was some of them that fought and died in the commune. They had Polish revolutionaries that died in the commune, things like that. But as far as governments, of course, everybody was against them, naturally, you know. All right, thank you, comrades. Yes, I would like to ask a question which could be responded to that from what I understand, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia and communism in Russia was foreign and that it was imported from Europe and from France. From what I understand, the French commune had an impact in Russia. Can someone clarify that? Yeah, uh, um, yes, Kamarad, it had a good, a big impact because, you know, Lenin grew up hearing about communards, right? It was like, a, it, it was something like a legend, okay? And then he uh, studied the commune, le the lessons of the commune. He read Karl Marx, the civil war in France, of course, and Engels and stuff. And uh, he learned the lessons, you know, about the commune. Like, uh, don't be too nice, number one. Take their cash right off the bat, okay? If you're gonna shoot, shoot. Commune was, uh, you know, still learning, like a baby's first steps. But the Bolsheviks, they learned from that. That's how come they lasted so long. Commune, 72 days. Bolsheviks, what, 72 years? Yeah, and I just wanted to add to that real quick. One of the comments I was going to make is that we heard in last week's class when we were listening to an untold history of the United States, and Oliver Stone had said that the Paris Commune basically had the capitalists of the world shocked and scared. And there was talk of class struggle all around the world at the time. And that played into events in the United States, like with the Haymarket Affair uh, and the different stuff that was happening into the 1880s and 1890s. And so the Paris Commune had an impact worldwide on the class struggle and on the, the conditions of the working class. And we see that later on it did, in a way, uh, lead to the Bolshevik Revolution. So I wanted to add that in there. So I'd just like to say that I'm glad that we have such a very good teacher for this subject. And to my understanding, I know on at least one call that I've been on with you that you've talked about doing work 
in Paris itself. So if you would be so kind, could you give us just a little bit of your background and ideally what is it like i don't know how long it's been since you moved to america or whatnot but what is the memory of the paris commune in paris in like modern times if you could be so kind thank you okay one thing i do remember a lot because uh i was uh 14 15 uh, that's before I joined the Communist Party in France, but it was the 100th anniversary of the Commune. There was huge, it was big. There was hundreds of thousands of people that did uh, climb to the wall. You know, it was uh, May 1870, uh, 1971, okay? Another thing I do remember a lot, it was when this guy, uh, a leader of the French Communist Party named Jacques Duclos, when he died, he was buried in that cemetery. And then, same thing, when he got his funerals, people climbed to the, walk to the wall, just like they do for the commune, but for him. And there was hundreds of thousands of people, a sea of red flags. And me and my comrade, we we're both 15 years old, no, 16, something like that. And we, uh, we climbed on the wall, that wall. And we watched the whole thing at the one end of the wall, far away, but we saw the whole thing. That's what I remember a lot about La Commune, you know. All right, thank you. I have a, a comment and then a question real quick. As I mentioned Alsace and Lorraine, and I know that when uh, the Second World War came along, that was a big uh, conflicting territory between France and Germany. So is that where that conflict comes from? is Alsace and Lorraine uh, being, I guess, given to, to Bismarck? Yes, comrade, but actually it's World War I. At the time of World War I, 1914, Alsace-Lorraine was possessed by Germany, okay? And uh, it was one of the reasons, too, of the conflict. And after Germany was defeated, Alsace-Lorraine came back to France in 1918, you know, when Germany was defeated. So yeah, Alsace-Lorraine was always important territory that meant a lot to either Germany or to France. And one thing, the people there, they're half and half. They speak German, kind of like Chicanos in America. They'll speak Spanish and, and English right there. They speak French and German, just like that. Great, thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, hi, so my question is like, so did, did like the Paris Commune after after it happened, did that lead directly into like the modern French like Communist Party or did it get like completely destroyed and, and the modern party was like more of a response to like World War II and things or was it sort of a continuation of the movement? Thanks. Yeah, it really was completely destroyed. It was a disaster. That's how come Marx and Engels ended the first international. But it wasn't destroyed forever, you know, obviously. And then in the early, let me see, well, at the time of World War I and during World War I and right after World War I, you know, time of the Bolshevik Revolution, that the spark was rekindled, the fire was lit again, you know, so it took a while, but it was still there. It just came back with the Bolshevik Revolution. That was it. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade Angelo from New York, General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, in New York, on Broadway, for quite a number of years, there's been a play 
called Les Miserables, The Miserable Ones. I'm, and it's all about people carrying red flags at that period of time. I think it's the taking place in that period of the commune, if I'm wrong. Um, can you speak on that? Yes, camarade. This is a very interesting subject. Les Miserables, famous by Victor Hugo, right? Really famous stuff worldwide. And it takes place in 1832. You know, that one revolution in 1832, that's the first time the red flag appeared on the barricades. And later on, 39, 48, and all that. Okay. And, uh, but sadly, Victor Hugo, he was alive at the time of the commune. And while the commune was going on, he didn't like it. You talk a bunch of garbage about communards, like they were lumpen proletaria, they were uh, scum, they were the worst, the wretched of the earth, you know. You talk all of that. But later, he repented, he changed. And then, because the government sent him in exile as well, right? And then he, all the surviving communards, he, he brought them to his house and helped them any way he could. So he, uh, he went uh, good, bad, and then good again. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, so 18 years after the Paris Commune, the Second International formed. And as we know, it was full of opportunism and class collaborationism. Um, did the Paris Commune have, uh, have an impact on that um, opportunism in the Second International, or was it just something uh, completely unrelated? Yeah, it was kind of unrelated because the defeat of the Commune was a disaster, actually, and uh, it, that's why they ended the First International. But later on, it was restarted, but it became um, opportunistic, especially in 1914, as we all know, World War I, okay? It was later, but it took time to, to lose its uh, revolutionary spirit, but we cannot blame the commune on, on that, of course. All right, thank you, comrade. Uh, similar to question, but more of, uh, for France itself. In the middle years, like the 1880s and 1890s, did that kind of opportunistic thinking like leaked into the French socialist movement towards things versus how England was at the time, especially. Yeah, it leaked definitely in France too, for sure. And you know, when, one thing said is uh, the grandson of Karl Marx, because his daughter married a French guy, right? Longuet. So his grandson became an opportunist, you know? Really bad. Lenin always talk about him. Although he never said that he was Marx's grandson, because that's embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Thank you, comrade. Thank you, comrade. So the first thing I wanted to say was just to respond to what Comrade General Secretary said about Les Miserables. Uh, Les Miserables takes place from the mid-1810s to the 1830s, and it ends in the June Revolution. Uh, it doesn't actually cover the Paris Commune. Uh, the second thing that I had wanted to say was uh, I would highly recommend everybody on this call read two separate works from Comrade Marx, uh, namely The Civil War in France and uh, Critique of the Gotha Program. The first one uh, includes some direct uh, reflections from Marx on lessons that he had learned from the Paris Commune and the events that had happened. 
Um, and in the critique of the Gotha program, the reason I mentioned that is that I think that that is, uh, if you read it, keeping in mind what had happened with the Harris Commune, you can definitely see the practical lessons that Comrade Marx had learned and how he was uh, informed the criticisms that he had of uh, the Social Democratic Workers Party of Germany. Uh, thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. And funny you should mention that because in the next section, we actually read from the Civil War in France. Uh, and I also want to mention that New Outlook Publishers uh, released Critique of the Gotha Program uh, on their site. So if you're interested in, in purchasing that book, please support our partner publishing house. Comrade General Secretary, Angelo, you have the floor. Yeah, I just was listening to the grandson. And it brings me back to my experiences. Beware of red diaper babies. They never turn out to be any good. <laughs> That's all. Thank you. I'm going to add about uh, what I said about the uh, civil war in France. Go yeah, ahead, everyone got to read this. It's awesome. And what's special, it was written 48 hours, two days after the last barricade was taken, after the massacre. It was written on May 30th, 1871, just two days. This work is historical. It's like in 48 hours, Marx was able to grasp the historical significance of an event. Nobody in history has ever done that. All right, thank you, comrade. So we're gonna go ahead, go to the last part of our presentation tonight, but this is gonna be the second section, which is the analysis of the Paris Commune. So it says the Paris Commune provided an example of a socialist experiment for the first time and showed that the bourgeois could be overthrown at least from a city such as Paris. However, it also revealed issues with what actions are taken once revolution occurs. The hesitancy to act further and pursue the bourgeois or to take the Bank of France ultimately meant the end of the Paris Commune. Engels analyzed the Paris Commune extensively on its 20th anniversary in 1891. This is the Civil War in France by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. So this is the historical background and overview of the Civil War. Reads, thanks to the economic and political development of France since the French Revolution of 1789, for 50 years, the position of Paris has been such that no revolutions could break out there without assuming a proletarian character. That is to say, the proletariat, which had bought victory with its blood, would advance its own demands after victory. These demands were more or less unclear and even confused, corresponding to the state of evolution reached by the workers of Paris at the particular period. But in the last resort, they all amounted to the abolition of the class antagonism between capitalists and workers. It is true that no one knew how this was to be brought about. But the demand itself, however indefinite it still was in its formulation, contained a threat to the existing order of society. The workers who put it forward were still armed. Therefore, the disarming of the workers was the first commandment for the bourgeois at the helm of the state. Hence, after every revolution won by the workers, a new struggle ending with the defeat of the workers. This happened for the first time in 1848. The liberal bourgeoisie of the parliamentary opposition held banquets for securing reform of the franchise which was to ensure supremacy for their party. Forced more and more in their struggle with the government to appeal to the people, 
they had to allow the radical and republican strata of the bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie gradually to take the lead. But behind these stood the revolutionary workers, and since 1830, these had acquired far more political independence than the bourgeoisie, and even the republicans suspected. At the moment of the crisis between the government and the opposition, the workers opened battle on the streets. King Louis Philippe vanished, and with him the franchise reform. And in its place arose the Republic, and indeed one which the victorious workers themselves designated as a quote-unquote social republic. No one, however, was clear as to what this social republic was to imply, not even the workers themselves. But they now had arms in their hands and were a power in the state. Therefore, as soon as the bourgeoisie republicans in control felt something like firm ground under their feet, their first aim was to disarm the workers. This took place by driving them into the insurrection of June 1848 by direct breach of faith, by open defiance and the attempt to banish the unemployed to a distant province. The government had taken care to have an overwhelming superiority of force. After five days of heroic struggle, the workers were defeated, and then followed a bloodbath of the defenseless prisoners, the likes of which has not been seen since the days of the civil wars, which ushered in the downfall of the Roman Republic. It was the first time that the bourgeoisie showed to what insane cruelties of revenge it will be goaded the moment the proletariat dares to take its stand against them as a separate class, with its own interests and demands. And yet, 1848 was only child's play compared with their frenzy in 1871. On April 1st, it was decided that the highest salary received by any employee of the commune, and therefore also by its members themselves, might not exceed 6,000 francs. On the following day, the commune decreed the separation of the church from the state and the abolition of all state payments for religious purposes, as well as the transformation of all church property into national property, as a result of which, on April 8th, a decree excluding from the schools all religious symbols, pictures, dogmas, prayers, any word, all that belongs to the sphere of the individual's conscience, was ordered to be excluded from the schools, and this decree was gradually applied. On the 5th, in reply to the shooting, day after day of the commune's fighters captured by the Versailles troops, a decree was issued for imprisonment of hostages, but it was never carried into effect. On the 6th, the guillotine was brought out by the 137th Battalion of the National Guard and publicly burnt amid great popular rejoicing. On the 12th, the commune decided that the victory column on the place Vendôme, which had been cast from guns captured by Napoleon after the War of 1809, should be demolished as a symbol of chauvinism and incitement to national hatred. This decree was carried out on May 16th. On April 16th, the commune ordered a statistical tabulation of factories, which had been closed down by the manufacturers, and the working out of plans for the carrying on of these factories by workers formerly employed in them, 
who were to be organized in cooperative societies and also plans for the organization of these cooperatives in one great union. On the 20th, the commune abolished night work for bakers and also the workers' registration cards, which since the Second Empire had been run as a monopoly by police nominees, exploiters of the first rank. The issuing of these registration cards was transferred to the mayors of the 20th arrondissements of Paris. On April 30th, the commune ordered the closing of the pawn shops on the ground that they were a private exploitation of labor and were in contradiction with the right of the workers to their instruments of labor and to credit. On May 5th, it ordered the demolition of the Chapel of Atonement, which had been built in the expiation of the execution of Louis the 16th. All right, let's see, who else did we have? Thus, from March 18th onwards, the class character of the Paris movement, which had previously been pushed into the background by the fight against the foreign invaders, emerged sharply and clearly. As almost without exception, workers or recognized representatives of the workers sat in the commune. Its decision bore a decidedly proletarian character. Either they decreed reforms which the Republican bourgeoisie had failed to pass solely out of cowardice, but which provided a necessary basis for the free activity of the working class, such as the realization of the principle that in relation to the state, religion is purely private matter, or the promulgated decrees, which were in direct interest of the working class, and to some extent cut deeply at the old order of society. In a beleaguered city, however, it was possible at most to make a start in the real realization of all these measures. And from the beginning of May onwards, all their energies were taken up by the fight against the ever-growing armies assembled by the Versailles government. On April 7th, the Versailles troops had captured the same crossing at Nuit on the western front of Paris. On the other hand, in the attack on the southern front on the 11th, they were repulsed by heavy losses by General Udif. Paris was continually bombarded and moreover by the very people who had stigmatized as a sacrilege the bombardment of the same city by the Prussians. These same people now begged the Prussian government for the hasty return of the French soldiers taking prisoner at Sedan and Metz. In order that they might recapture Paris uh, from, for them. From the beginning of May, the gradual arrival of these troops gave the Versailles forces a decided ascendancy. This already became evident when on April 23rd, Sears broke off the negotiations for the exchange proposed by the commune of the Archbishop of Paris, Georges Delboy, and a whole number of other priests held hostages in Paris for only one man, Blanqui, who had twice been elected to the commune, but a, was a prisoner in Cuervaux. And even more from the changed language of Sears, previously procrastinating and equivocal, he now suddenly became insolent, 
threatening, brutal. The Versailles forces took the redoubt of Moulin Saquet on the front, on the southern front, on May 3rd. On the 9th, Fort Issy, which had been completely reduced to ruins by gunfire. And on the 14th, Fort Von Vey. On the western front, they advanced gradually, capturing the numerous villages and buildings which extended up to the city wall until they reached the main wall itself. On the 21st, thanks to the treachery and carelessness of the National Guards stationed there, they succeeded in forcing their way into the city. The Prussians who held the northern and eastern forts allowed the Versailles troops to advance across the land north of the city, which was forbidden ground to them under the armistice, and thus to march forward and attack on a long front, which the Parisians naturally thought covered by the armistice, and therefore held only with weak forces. As a result, this only a weak resistance was put up in the western half of Paris in the luxury city proper. It grew stronger and more tenacious the nearer the incoming troops approached the... Eastern half, the real working class city. Okay. Okay. All right. All right, we can get somebody else to read this last one. Okay. It was only after eight days fighting that the last defender of uh, the commune was overwhelmed on the heights of Belleville and Menilmontant and that the massacre of defenseless men, women, and children, which had been raging all through the week on an increasing scale, reached its zenith. The breach loaders could no longer kill fast enough. The vanquished workers were struck down in hundreds by Mitralou's fire. Over 30,000 citizens of Paris were massacred. The wall of the Federals, aka the wall of the Communards, at the Pere-Lecaise, cemetery where the final mass murder was consumed is still standing today. A mute but eloquent testimony to the savagery of which the ruling class is capable as soon as the working class dares to come out for, out for its rights. Then came the mass arrests, 38,000 workers arrested, when the slaughter of them all proved to be impossible, the shooting of victims arbitrarily selected from the prisoners' ranks, and the removal of the rest to great camps where they awaited trial by court-martial. The Prussian troops surrounding the northern half of Paris had orders not to allow any fugitives to pass. Officers often shut their eyes when the sailors paid more obedience to the dictates of humanity than to those of the general staff, particularly honors due to the Saxon army corps, which behaved very humanely and left many workers who were obviously to fighters for the commune. All right, thank you, comrade. And we'll go ahead and stop for our first round of questions and comments, and we'll have a last section after that, which deals with uh, proletarian patriotism when it comes to the French commune. Uh, so if I read that correctly, I guess it could be safe to say that um, as communists, we should not be using the guillotine as a symbol of our cause, because it sounds like they brought out the guillotine and burnt it and were Pretty happy about that. I did read that correctly, correct? Yeah, it's correct. Thank you. Great. Thank you, comrade. Okay. I was, um, one of the reasons I logged on to this class 
is because it's so interested in the lessons of the Paris Commune and how I think the modern day communists, as opposed to your organization, ignore the Paris Commune. I hope that all the comrades listen to what the commune stood for separation of church and state, etc. That came from the commune, did not come from the American Revolution. Okay, it did not come from the American Revolution. It came from the, from the communists. So if we study the commune and the Paris commune, we'll learn our proletarian history and be able to defend it against the reactionaries and the fascists and the liberals who claim that they brought some great uh, light, light into the world. It was the Paris commune. So thank you for having this program. It's very important. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I also wanted to uh, say that uh, next month, one of our classes is going to be on the American Revolution. So we'll touch on a little bit of that a little bit more uh, when we get to that point. So I actually, uh, the same thing stood out to me that stood out to comrade. And I'm just kind of curious. Uh, in modern day America, there is definitely an association of the guillotine with anti-capitalism. Uh, and it's very clear that within the Paris Commune, that association did not exist. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious about why that discrepancy is there, uh, why anti-capitalist socialists in America in the modern era will use the guillotine as a symbol, whereas in the Paris Commune, they rejected it. Yeah, my answer was going to be that I think that a lot of people look at the history of the French Revolution, which was a progressive event, uh, but they look at it and they just take it on its face to be revolution. And so instead of, you know, having something like uh, the, the, the cannons at the barricades in the Paris Commune or the hammer and sickle or something else be their revolutionary symbolism, they go with the guillotine. So I think it's just kind of not having that historical context to know that that's not necessarily a socialist uh, uh, symbol. But if anybody has a better answer than that, uh, feel free to raise your hand. I'm gonna add something to this. Uh, you know, the guillotine was a symbol of uh, ending the monarchy in 1789 and um, until Napoleon time. Uh, but remember this though, the Bolshevik of the French Revolution, Robespierre, I say Bolshevik because he was the equivalent of Lenin at the time, okay? And Lenin admired him so much. They guillotined him, the reactionary. So, you know, when the communar put fire to the guillotine, he was also meant about this, okay? That's all. All right, thank you, comrade. And I saw comrade uh, threw their hand up. Did you have an answer, comrade? I think that our love for ultra-leftism in this country and violent anarchist accelerationalism plays a big part into that as well. That's all I have, thank you. Thank you, comrade. I, I know that uh, one of the things that I would constantly see on social media was people talking about how it only took a couple of hundred dollars to make a guillotine. Like they were just gonna make one, bring it out to Wall Street and kill the bankers. Like it's, it's not that simple and that's not, that's not our, our thing. Yeah, I was just gonna throw in my two cents. I think it was because it was the bourgeois state's method of capital punishment at the time was the guillotine. 
it was used to basically to keep the lower classes in control under their thumb, basically. And so I think that's why they rejected the guillotine at the time. That is very true, comrade. Yeah, thank you, comrade. And another thing that I wanted to say that just dawned on me, and it's very interesting to note, is that it seems like the ultra-left uh, has a bit of an infatuation with the French Revolution, but a bit of a grudge against the American Revolution. Like they say the American Revolution is a counter-revolution. It was pro-slavery. It was, it, you know, they go ahead and, and discard the wheat with the shaft from that one. Uh, but they love the French Revolution because of all the revolutionary imagery of it. So I, I just, I thought that was, that was very interesting. Okay, so um, I... Uh, was reading Marx, and maybe I mix it up my French revolutions, but I think he mentioned the role of the lumpen proletariat in, I believe, the Paris Commune, probably playing a negative role. Um, can uh, anyone comment on that, on the lumpen proletariat? Um, no, I haven't read anything specific to the Commune about the lumpen proletariat. Of course, there was, you know, but. Um, if anything, they played a good role, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Okay, maybe I'll have to figure out what I was reading. Another question, uh, yeah, I, in that what we just read, they mentioned political independence of the working class. Um, how did they get that, quote unquote, political independence? Well, you know, it's because ever since 1830, the workers would uh, spill their blood but they would never take the power. The bourgeois would grab the power each and every time, many times, over and over. Only the first time in 1871, they spilled the blood and they got the power as well. Okay, sorry, what I meant was how did they get, like did they have like unions at the time? How did they actually develop that, that power like through uh, organization? Well, you know, there was a first international since 1864, although, as I said before, it was majority was anarchist by Proudhon. But still, you know, wave after wave, you get better, you know. Like Angelo said one time, each wave is stronger than the last one. All right, so we'll go ahead and go to our last section uh, of the class, which is on the commune and proletarian patriotism. Marx pointed out a further mistake of the commune, namely rushing to insurrection pushed by proletarian patriotism and revolutionary socialism with a foreign army at your doorsteps. Therefore, we must know and understand these historical events, namely the Franco-Prussian war that occurred eight months prior to the commune. The first international was founded in 1864 meaning it had been in existence already six years at the time of the Franco-Prussian War and had accumulated precious experience regarding workers' uprisings. Marx wrote three addresses of the international about that war. The first two are short. The third one is long and became a famous work known as The Civil War in France. In July 1870, Louis Napoleon, which is Napoleon III, trying to bring back the chauvinist glory of Napoleon I and brandishing the false 
patriotism of oppressor classes launched a war of aggression against Prussia, which means Germany. Marx in the first address of July warned French workers against falling in the trap of chauvinism and false patriotism and asked them to show support to German workers who defended their country. Napoleon was swiftly defeated by the Prussians and taken prisoner on September 2nd. Upon hearing the news, the French worker rose up in Paris and overthrew Louis Napoleon's empire, handing power to the bourgeoisie who proclaimed the Republic and formed a government of quote, national defense. That is when Marx wrote the second address of the International on September 9th. In it, he said that Germany had gone from a war of defense to a war of conquest when it crossed the border and marched towards Paris. He warned the French proletariat that doing an uprising when Prussian soldiers were at the gates would be desperate folly. Marx warned French workers not to be swayed by the national souvenirs of 1792. That was a time when French people rose in mass to save the First Republic under attack by all feudalists of Europe. Marx warned against a mechanical application of the 1792 slogan, the fatherland in danger, to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. He warned that fighting the Prussians on behalf of the bourgeoisie would be madness. Marx ended the second address with, vive la République, long live the Republic, even though he knew it was a bourgeois republic. The bourgeois government of alleged national defense turned out to be a government of national treason. In Paris, the National Guard was created to defend the city. It was composed of workers. Now the proletariat was armed, and that became the nightmare of the bourgeois government, who was more concerned about fighting the workers than fighting the invaders. Paris was besieged for four months by the Prussian army. The treasonous government signed a shameful peace with Bismarck. Prussian troops paraded in Paris and that enraged the proletariat who could not accept defeat. A Frenchman loved his country and it was impossible to be lighthearted when it was threatened. The reaction of Parisians was one of outrage and the people of Paris called the surrender a monstrous trickery. Determined not to bow to the enemies, the National Guard of Paris organized the seizing of numerous cannons, moving them to specific parts of the city, namely Montmartre, which was the highest point in the city. The bourgeoisie didn't care to fight the Prussians, but rather was getting ready for war against Paris workers and attempted to disarm them. That is the day the proletariat overthrew the bourgeoisie and proclaimed the commune. Here is the commune proclamation of March 18th by the Central Committee of the National Guard. The proletarians of Paris in the midst of the defeats and betrayals of the ruling class have come to understand that they must save the situation by taking conduct of public affairs into their own hands. That clearly shows the intricate, we can say dialectic, dialectical connection of revolutionary socialism and proletarian patriotism. That's very actual today, comrades. Before the commune, Marx was against an insurrection and, and wanted workers to hold their horses, wait for peace and foreign troops to leave the gates of Paris. 
or else it might turn into another massacre, such as a June 1848 slaughter of the Paris proletariat. But from the moment that Parisian workers launched their insurrection, triggered by their disgust of the bourgeoisie's betrayal of the nation and its attempt to disarm the national guard, Marx gave the proletariat his full support, praising the communards storming heaven. History has no like example of like greatness. All right, and with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our last round of questions and comments for tonight. I think that uh, it's very interesting looking at the difference between Marxists and ultra-leftists when it comes to the other having some form of victory. Marx was against the insurrection at first, and then when it happened, he gave his full support to it. Uh, on the flip side, though, ultra-leftists will regularly talk about how if Marxist-Leninists are successful in having a revolution and establishing a socialist state, they would just immediately fight against us. Uh, it's something that they regularly talk about and have done historically, like with the Maknavites and the Bolsheviks. Uh, so I just think that it's very interesting that... Um, Ultra leftists are often the ones who speak the loudest about some form of left unity, uh, which they normally mean the subservience of Marxist to ultra leftist tendencies. And yet they're the ones who most often go against any form of unity by talking about sabotaging our projects, sabotaging our experiments. Hell, they sabotage our revolution like they did in California a couple months ago. Uh, and so anyways, I just think that uh, Marx being able to oppose the insurrection at first, but then give his full support to it when it happened is a good example of how we act when we don't get what we want uh, versus how the various ultra leftist tendencies will act. Uh, thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. Hi. So uh, my it's like French history is a little, little iffy. Like did they have colonies at that point? Did they respond to the, the commune at all anyway? That's all my question is, thanks. Yeah, they were starting to, I think it started back in uh, mid uh, 19th century in Algeria. I'm not 100% sure, but as um, by the end of the 19th century, Algeria was 100% colonized. Hmm. All right, and I'm also looking up now to have a better answer to your question because it was something I was considering as well. Um, but in the meantime. So just wanted to touch on like a little bit of historical background. So the Franco-Prussian War was like a total failure for France. And this was like kind of the start of Germany becoming unquestionably the largest military power in Europe at the time. So, you know, that's something to consider. And it's interesting that Marx cautions against it at that time, knowing that, you know, that war was disastrous for France and that if they would have just jumped the gun like that, that it would have just been total chaos. You know what I mean? Like fighting a foreign war and doing a revolution, that's something that ultra leftists still cannot get a grasp on. You know, we see all the time people talking about, uh, you know, the people of Russia should turn their guns on Putin while they're in the midst of a war. That's crazy. That's idealism, like a hundred percent. It's crazy, you know, but it's out there. That's all. 
All right, thank you, comrade. And I also have an answer now to a comrade question. Comrade from California is correct. In 1830, the second French colonial empire uh, was the beginnings of it were laid with the French invasion of Algeria. Um, and then there wasn't really anything uh, until Morocco in 1912. Uh, but I'm also looking because this doesn't look like it's sorted, you know, at time wise, because what I'm trying to find out, maybe comrades have a, a answer for this, uh, is when the French colonization of Vietnam began, if it was before or after the commune. But I don't have that infer, uh, information right off. Yes, I'm pretty sure the colonization of uh, Vietnam and the, and the Cambodia and Laos was in the, in the 1880s or 70s after the commune. That's correct. All right. So we have five minutes left. Uh, if there's any questions or comments about this. And don't be afraid to ask any questions that you may have, comrades. There's no stupid questions here. Yeah, just real quickly, I know we talk about, or Marx talks about the lessons they've learned, but for the modern day, right, how would we hypothetically go about this to make it successful, considering that the times now are not the same even at Lenin's, and Lenin's times were not the same as the commune? So in general, in a summation, what, what can we do now, generally, hypothetically, to get it right this time? Thank you, if we could. You know, comrade, what's very different now, okay, in the in late 1870 and early 71, you had 300,000 proletarians with weapons in their hands, bayonet cannon. Okay, we don't have that. So, if one day we could have a lots of uh, revolutionaries into the army and the police in any country, then there would be a way for insurrection because we would be backed up you know, by, by force. Until then, what are we going to do? You know, try to take the capital with 100 men? All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, thank you for that, Christian. You just reminded me of something. We could see this very clear as day with examples in America, in South America specifically. There's one country that has retained its power and been free of United States influence. That is Venezuela. And the reason that they were able to do this is because they did have control of the police and military. We look at the opposite, Salvador Allende's government. He allowed the bourgeois to you know, remain in control of the military and police. And because of this fatal flaw, he was assassinated. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I found a definitive answer on the French colonization of Vietnam. That started in uh, 1887 after the victory over China in the Sino-French War, which was 1884 to 1885. So that's when French Indochina started and the colonization of that occurred. So I guess I kind of want to ask or expand on a question that I think Jake asked earlier, which was like, basically like, well, so like this was all before Lenin and a Leninist party and the importance of like building a party to be able to take over control of the government and then 
you know, so there's a lot of improvements that happened that from the lessons that were learned from the Paris Commune. But the question that I have to bring it to a point is like, could the Paris Commune be considered a spontaneous phenomenon? Because was there, or was there a lot of planning that I'm just leaving out? Or could you consider it a very spontaneous action? That's all. Thank you. Yes, comrade, you're right. It was very spontaneous. It was born out of the situation. You couldn't say that there was a revolutionary party. The international was there, but you know the Blancists were a majority. Uh, the, in the international was anarchist. Uh, so you know there wasn't a revolutionary party. It was spontaneous, um, and it, because the workers had weapons in their hand, they couldn't stand the foreign invaders, they couldn't stand the bourgeoisie. It all blew up, you know, just like that. But maybe it was destined to be a failure, you know. Karl Marx said, you stormed the heavens. That's true. They did. They tried. All right. Foundations of Leninism by Stalin, he explicitly talks about there being in every revolutionary situation an objective and subjective part of the revolution. The objective one being the spontaneous, whereas the subjective is a role of the party to direct that spontaneity in the direction they want the revolution to go. So in every revolution, there's going to be um, spontaneity. It's just a matter of, can it be controlled with a strong party? All right, thank you. And thank you, comrades, for all of your comments tonight. We're going to go ahead and wrap up now. Comrade General Secretary Angelo, is there anything you'd like to say? No, it was a very good class. I really thought it was a very good class on the history of the uh, commune arts. Thank you very much to Comrade in California for presenting us. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.